good morning. My name is Brad Talley. I am the teaching elder here at Grace Community Church. Uh, If this is your first time, we extend to you a very special welcome. And if it's not your first time, welcome home. Welcome back. Welcome home. As a pastor, you always want to know the audience that you're speaking to. You want to know as much as you can about them. I recognize that this is the group that couldn't afford to go to the beach this weekend. So it's really a, it's a perfect message, actually, because it talks about envy and the rich, you know, when we, we get into <laughs> So uh, you should know, I, I don't know if I should tell you this or not, you'll discern it whether or not I tell you, I have had a little more coffee this morning than I typically do on Sunday morning. Yeah, so, yeah, amen. So, it's going to be one of those kind of days, you know. Um, And and I should tell you something else, too. Uh, And and I'll tell you that right after we recognize uh, those who have served and are currently serving our country and our military. If you've been in the service, would you please stand? We just want to say thank you so very much for your... Amen. God bless you and thank you so very much. I saw a little thing on on Facebook. That's where I keep track of all of you uh, on Facebook. And, you know, see who to bring up at the elders meeting. Church discipline is necessary now. Um, but I saw this little thing on Facebook that you know, there, an officer was handing a little boy a flag and he was crying, lost his dad. And he said, in case you thought it was National Barbecue Day. And it's really touched my heart to think about uh, the sacrifice that not only so many men and women have made serving in the military, but their families as well. And it kind of connects. Uh, look, I, I recognize that in the church we, we have to distinguish between, not between church and state, as we do have to, talked about that not long ago. We have to distinguish between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And it's very easy for those lines to get blurred if we're not careful. But, uh, we are living in what could be the last days of life as we know it for a very long time. I, I, yesterday morning, I went out to the Trinity Academy graduation. I don't normally go. The speaker, though, uh, I thought, yeah, boy, I want to go. It's a guy named Oz Guinness. If you know that name, Oz Guinness, would you raise your hand? All right, that's quite a few of you. Look, this guy um, worked with Francis Schaeffer in... Labrie, in the early days of Labrie. Uh, I'm kind of going on trails. That's coffee-induced, I'm sure. But when David and Sean were ordained, when both of them were ordained, we we asked questions like, who do you think are the most five, six, seven influential theologians in all of church history? That's important. That's a plug for our church history class coming up. We're starting back this fall. And, uh, you know, there's, there's widespread agreement on five or six. Um, 
uh, Augustine, Athanasius, Anselm, uh, Thomas Aquinas. Don't agree with a lot of what he said, but he was Schleiermacher, Friedrich Schleiermacher. Don't agree with much of anything he said. But he was one of the most important. Were there any thinkers like that in the 20th century? Guys that had such an impact on the way people looked at God's word that they could be considered some of the most important theologians in all of church history? Two, maybe. Francis Schaeffer was one of them. Not so much because he broke new ground in his thinking, but because he he anticipated... um, Postmodernism and the Christian response to postmodernism. Os Guinness and Francis Schaeffer were together a lot. He's a thinker on that kind of level. Uh, the other one would be maybe N.T. Wright, who has had a great deal of impact on the way theologians think. And why that makes a difference is because that's what gets disseminated on Sunday morning. What theologians think eventually comes out and what is said on Sunday morning and ultimately in what you think. And those thinkers at the highest levels are guys that we ought to be listening to. At least, whether we agree with them or not, we need to know what, where the church is heading, where thought and society is headed. Os Guinness is a guy, got his doctorate from Oxford. He could speak anywhere. was talking yesterday about speaking at Stanford one time. He could have... He never would be invited, but he would be the quality at Harvard or Stanford or any, any school in the, in the world. He said yesterday, I never accept these invitations. His friend, one of his close friends, is the chairman of the board of Trinity, and perhaps that's why he came. 21 graduates. And here's Oz Guinness speaking to these 21 graduates. And he was saying... things that I have thought for a long time but they have no possible way of articulating them like he did. And he implied as much that we may be in the twilight of Western Christian civilization as it has been known. I mean, we may be at very close to the end. In fact, he said this could be an Augustinian moment. Again, a plug for church history in which uh, Augustine loved the Roman Empire. He recognized somewhere in his life that God was not going to redeem mankind through a political empire. And he wrote the city of God saying there are two cities, Jerusalem and Rome. There are two cities, the, 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 the city of man and the city of God. Um, so uh, Augustine heard about Rome being sacked by the barbarians, the vandals, and, or, or the barbarians, and the vandals were at the gate, the barbarians were at the gate of his hometown or his, his city, home city of, of Hippo in North Africa when he died. Discouraged because of what was coming. But his writings sustained Christian thought through the dark ages, and as Guinness was saying yesterday, those ages were very dark. Very dark. Am I making any sense whatsoever? I mean, Os Guinness is tough enough to begin with, but me trying to interpret him is really could be really bad news. Um, and he was essentially saying to these high school graduates, 
how you respond to the challenges ahead is going to determine the future of Western civilization as we know it now. We're already well down the road. I thought he implied perhaps, you know, the, the possibility of more dark ages. And you think, Pfft. let me ask you, if, if Islam is the prevailing religion in the world, do you think we're in for dark ages? How close do you think we are to that? Would it be easier for you to promote Islam or Christianity in most places in America right now? You know what I don't understand about people that are all about tolerance? Tolerance for everything except Christian. He talked about that ABC. You didn't know he was in the triangle and what that means, anybody but Carolina. He said anything but Christianity, you know, is, what's, is, the, is, the, is the deal now. Anything but Christianity, but Christian thought. Look, we're the only ones with the answers. Jesus is the only hope. And yet, that is the one voice that is silenced in America. Not in the South, always. Not in Harnett County, maybe. Wake County is a lot different than Harnett. Not in Johnston, maybe. But the silence will be deafening before we know it. And as careful as I am to know and articulate that our government was built on humanist principles as much as Christian principles. You have to understand this. Because they were mostly humanists, those guys. The, the early fa- fa- founding fathers. They were deists. They believed that God set the world in motion. And, but they recognized the biblical principles on which the country was founded work. It just works. When you follow the the the... the, the Guidelines of Scripture, you're gonna, your life is going to be better. And by the way, it was only in those days that humanism was not almost synonymous with Christianity. We talked about this. Those of you who were in the church history class last year, Erasmus was a humanist. All the humanists during the Renaissance and the Reformation were Bible-believing Humanists. They believed not that man is God, but they believed that anything is possible with man because we're created in the image of our Maker, in the image of God. And because of His grace and His gifts to us, we can do anything. The Roman Empire lasted 800 years. This iteration of Western civilization has lasted for about 500. Things move a lot quicker than they did back in that day. So, what are we fighting for anymore? I don't know. We've always known what we were fighting for. But what are we fighting for anymore? I can tell you this. I am grateful for those of you who have served in our military. And when I go around the world, people look at us like, 
you guys are crazy. And the only time they'll agree with me is when I say, do you agree that as the the American military goes, so goes the free world? I mean, do you think if America were no longer in play that China would be on Australia's doorsteps because, you know, there's food to be grown there, there are minerals to be mined from that ridiculous outback that's part of the country who knows what riches are out there but china could china could get them do you think they would be there if it weren't for america and begrudgingly yes well we don't know what to do with that we know less than ever what to do with that we're in trouble folks and os guinness said it in about 20 25 minutes yesterday it was a clarion call to us to be clear about what we believe And to speak it before our voices are silenced. He didn't say it that way, but it's pretty clear what he meant. So, I was just going to say I heard Oz Guinness yesterday because it might pop up from time to time in the, in the message. But uh, I think as it is, we better have prayer and go home. <laughs> well, um, look... Uh, we we do we, there is a call for us and, and and you may every every week almost we've got new people here some of you have just been coming for a little bit you might not know that i am quite conservative politically and at the same time like i say i hardly ever bring politics into this pulpit i don't i i because i don't think that's our job as the church our mission is to Take the gospel to the world. And by the way, if the gospel moves from these shores, what you need to be, what we need to be praying about is that when it gets to China full force, that it gets there in such a way that freedom follows the gospel, prosperity follows the gospel, and they become the new America. And they protect freedom worldwide. Or promote it worldwide. That's what we need to be, be praying for. And as, as disappointed as you may be that our day is done. And look at history and tell me how you can think it's otherwise. Look at it. Are you connected with history at all? Nothing lasts forever. Because the gospel follows or seeks out the poor. Prosperity follows the gospel and then pride comes on the heels of prosperity. It's inevitable. It's just the way that it works. So our day is dying. It doesn't have to die right now. But it's only going to continue to live. And one of the things that he said, and I was so, so grateful for it. And again, he didn't explain it. He didn't have to. He said, old distinctions have been blurred from the past like classes where we have different classes that, and so we're part of our class and we're different from other classes. He said, those are gone now. What it is now is generational. And younger people are isolated from older and previous generations that started in the 60s. It's full-blown now. And you think it's not worse than it was. It is worse than it was. It's way worse. Back then it was rebellion. Now it's apathy. And he essentially said, if you succumb to this, it's only us that matters nonsense. We're done. 
Essentially is what he said. You're, we're done. As, as I've said before, he said this in a lot fewer words and with a lot more effect than I'm saying it this morning. But hear, hear the word. We have to know what we believe and be unashamed of the only hope that there is. And that's in Christ. And we have to be unashamed about the truth of God's word, no matter how inconvenient it is in our day. And we have to say what God says about the issues. Don't be a jerk. Don't be going looking for trouble. That's not the point. But know what he says. Know what you believe. Know who you are, Christian. You're the only one with hope. And if we do go into another dark age, the only light will be the light of Jesus Christ shining through those who stand. Well, what if I die? Well, then you'll probably be a greater light. It's just the way it works. My goodness, discouragement to despair is maybe what we should title this, uh, um, rather than discouragement to delight, although there's a word for us in, even in this in Psalm 73. Um, I, by the way, the, 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 the screen that was up, 2 Corinthians 9-7, the Lord loves a cheerful giver, it was initially intended for the message this morning, which was going to be about giving, but... I knew that the people who were away today would be so disappointed if they missed a message about giving. So, um, you'll be sure to be back, I know. Uh, Don't tell them, just in case, uh, next week, you know, so that they, 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 they just won't be able to wait. But I thought we'd look today at, at an area <laughs> that is really, really prominent in our church body and that is discouragement. I mean, just think of all the causes for discouragement coming upon us. Look, you, you could be really discouraged from the things that I, I just said, but God never allows us to look at our circumstances and say, all is lost. No, he says, look beyond the circumstances. Look to Jesus. And that's what we're going to do. But just think about Physical ailments that bring us down. Spiritual causes, relational causes, circumstances, employment, whatever. That bring about discouragement. And none of us escape those times of discouragement. I mean, we may be like Job who said that which I fear, the thing that I fear, comes upon me, or the cause of our discouragement may hit us out of the blue. It kind of hit Job out of the blue, but then everything he was concerned about kept happening, piling on, one thing on another. Either way, many of us, at some point in our lives, would characterize our discouragement as deep discouragement, actually to the place of despondency, coming to a place of despondency. And I can understand how some in our, our body are right on the precipice of that right now. They, they, I've heard it a fair amount lately. 
Despondency is a state of extreme discouragement. It's a pit from which there seems to be no way out. A feeling of profound hopelessness. It is a heartsick gloom that renders one unmotivated to or even incapable of fighting back. You ever been there where you say, I just, I, I got nothing. The challenge is too great. I cannot meet it. Is it possible that you're there now? Well, you're in good company. You're in, you're in the company of a man named Asaph. This morning we're going to see how one of God's great singers overcame despondency. Asaph was not only a singer, he was a very special singer who wrote 12 songs. I think his last name was Calvert, I'm not sure, but Asaph Calvert may have been his name. Um, 1 Chronicles 25 tells us that that he was um, one who founded temple choirs. This morning we're going to take a look at a refreshingly honest psalm that Asaph authored. Psalm 73. I'm going to guess if you've, if you're really familiar with the Psalms, if you're familiar at all, and you've been discouraged, you've come across this Psalm before. Um, Don't you ever wonder if David ever came up to Asaph after writing a Psalm like this and said, hey bro, you're just going to have to, you're going to have to elevate your attitude a little bit. You need to, a little more encourage. Now wait a minute, I write some of those Psalms too, so... I'm going to guess that David understood completely. I mean, in this psalm, we'll be given a, a, a glimpse of a process in which God takes Asaph from just a pit of despair and brings him back to himself and to a place of rejoicing, a focus off of his depressing surroundings and a, an eternal perspective. There is rich instruction for us. So I want us to begin our time together but just by reading through, but... It's a long psalm. I'm going to read a little deliberately. So just remain seated if you would. And let's look at this psalm together. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. It took him a long time to get to that, didn't it? My feet had almost stumbled. <clears throat> my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek their entire lives. No trouble. They are not in trouble as others. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Where's Lee? Where's... Lee Willerford, did you did you read this psalm before you prayed that prayer this morning? Okay, well, I thought so. I thought he, he prayed that. Lord, help us to put off this pride, the necklace of our pride. <clears throat> and by the way, that's a great thing that these guys do. They're, they're in touch with what's going to be said and preached, and, it's, and it all works together. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they therefore, or they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. 
and their tongue struts through the earth. See any of that today? Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. You ever felt like that? For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning if I had said, though I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them like phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. Well, Lord, uh, we have taken this journey maybe many times in our lives. We pray that wherever we are this morning, you'll bring us to the place of praise and trust. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to begin uh, our time this morning by giving an outline of uh, the message. We have all these formatting problems, so please forgive those. Uh, again, and 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 um, if you want to get this down, go ahead and write it. Now. I'm going to move away from it in just a few moments and not come back to it. There's a logical flow to Asaph's thoughts because it was a process of his own personal journey. He was in a bad place when he began, but he found healing when God gave him a perspective that was greater than his problems. And so often we desperately need that. We need some perspective when we're in a hard place. I'm sure you know that when a psalm starts in one place and it ends in an entirely different place, especially when it starts off, woe is me, what are you doing, God, where are you? And it ends up praising God with all of one's heart. It happens over a process of time. It doesn't happen in the few minutes that it takes to write or to read a psalm like that. it's, It's a process that's being given to us. So, 
the psalmist is recounting a time, maybe, maybe it's a period of weeks, maybe it's years, in which he matured and grew, uh, grew spiritually. And so it is in this 73rd Psalm. So the outline, comparing your circumstances with others can lead to despair. No matter what your circumstances are and what the circumstances of the others that you're thinking about, that can lead you to despair. Discovery for the believer is often made in God's house. And you know that. That's why you're here this morning. That's one of the reasons you're here this morning. And then God's ultimate desire for us is that we find our delight in Him. See, when you're looking at circumstances, how can you be delighting in the Lord? Whether they're good or bad, our delight is to be in the Lord. Asaph's journey began with an admission that comparing his own circumstances with others had led him to despair. Especially since he was struggling at the same time that arrogant sinners were prospering. The contrast was glaring and Asaph often found himself asking, what is wrong with this picture? We ask that all the time, don't we? If not about ourselves, about somebody else. We say, how can a person who loves God so much go through what he or she has gone through? We don't get it. He made a discovery, though, that when he, when he began to reflect on the awkwardness of his attitude, and he found answers in God's house. When we study Job this fall, you're going to discover that it's okay to question God. We're just about one of the only religions that does that, you know. We get to question our God, but we're also going to discover that it's a good idea when you do that, especially when you accuse God. You know, there's a difference, isn't it, in certain types of questions. Sometimes I'm asking a question, sometimes I'm making an accusation. What are you doing here? You know, that's not a question, that's an accusation. And when you ask those kind of questions with God, it'd be a good idea to have your big boy britches or your big girl britches on when you ask him, because you're going to get an answer. And it's going to be... Pretty straightforward answer. Asaph, in the end, found delight in God, not in the success that he had so desired. He had so foolishly envied earlier in his journey. So with this outline in mind, we're going to go back to the beginning of Psalm 73 and then join Asaph in his journey along the way. In the very first verse, Asaph acknowledges that God is good to his people, to those who are of pure hearts. Now, when Asaph wrote this psalm, he knew where it would end. And so he starts off saying, look, look, okay, we all know this. We know that God is good to his people. We say... All, a lot, don't we? God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. I, that's a great way to remind us that God is sovereign and He is good. I just prefer to say, God is sovereign, God is good. It's difficult sometimes when we acknowledge that whatever problems I have in my life, at the very least, could have been prevented by God. God is sovereign. This is on him. Do I believe at the same time that God is good? 
That's a different matter altogether. And, and Asaph, even though he acknowledged that God is good, he said, I was struggling. You've been there too. Asaph knew all the answers intellectually. See, that's one of my problems when I, when I start panicking because I've got a, a trouble that's in my life, that's looming big in my life. I know what the answers are. It's not a problem of knowing the answers. It's a, knowing, it's a problem of trusting with my heart. That God is sovereign. God is good. Asaph knew it. He was a Levite in David's time for goodness sake. But he was despondent. And God wanted to move him from having that academic knowledge to having a personal, relational, experiential knowledge of God's goodness. As soon as Asaph said God is good, he said, But woe is me, or woe was me. As for my feet, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had almost slipped. And then he he got became quite honest. I wonder if when you're struggling, if you're as honest as Asaph was. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We usually try to dress up our sin. In the form of righteous indignation. I just can't believe the way that Colby Elmore does, you know. What about Scott Colberth? Have you seen him? My goodness, how is that honoring to the Lord? To drive around in that kind of a car, to do this or to do that. Asaph told it like it was. I envied those who were arrogant because I wanted to be just like them. Most of us just aren't willing to do that. We're not willing to admit our envy. When we criticize those with more money, more talent, more knowledge, more good looks, more health, more whatever, we couch it in some sort of justifiable righteous indignation. It rarely finds its way into our conscious criticism. When we criticize them, we're usually trying to make ourselves feel better. You know, because if I can take him down a notch, then my circumstances don't speak to the fact that God doesn't seem to love me as much as he does him or her. When we compare ourselves to the wrong standard, especially when we feel inferior to the one with whom we are comparing ourselves, we're quite susceptible to depression. Then our complaints start to roll. And Asaph certainly complained. Look at them from the moment they're born to the moment they die. No problems. They have all they want. Food. Good looks. The common man has troubles, but not these jokers. Now, do you, do you think that Asaph could have known all of these things to be true? what he said about them, that they have no troubles. I mean, you ever find yourself saying, look at old so-and-so. Everything always seems to go right for him or her. You don't, you don't have any idea about people's problems, do you? I mean, same with a- Asaph, but it didn't stop him from complaining and comparing. Not only are they trouble-free, but they wear the success <clears throat> like, like a, 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 
a necklace. They have pride like a necklace and they think that their successes make them the kings and queens of the world. Then they think they can just run roughshod all over people. And they'll do anything they, to get what they want, even resorting to violence. They shake their fist at the heavens and they threaten us lesser types. And amazingly, it seems as though everyone just loves them and thinks that they are the finest things. Asaph had it bad, didn't he? There's more. They can shake their fist at the heavens because they feel no accountability to God. What's God going to do to them? They become so successful for all practical purposes, they think that they are the gods of the universe. And you know how that makes me feel? It makes me feel like it does me no good whatsoever to follow the Lord. Why was I even saved in the first place? Really? This is the way that it is? These men and women follow the lust of their hearts and they just get richer and more successful all the time. Too much coffee. I try to follow the Lord's ways and I just get beat up day in and day out. I can never get the slightest pleasure without feeling guilty. And whatever they do, they just love life. They lap it up and they have no guilt whatsoever. I'm just tired of it. It's likely that Asaph exaggerated the wickedness of those of whom he was envious. But then again, maybe he didn't exaggerate. We never do, so why should he? It could be that he was spot on with his assessment of some who made life miserable for others, but even so, it wasn't so much other people's actions and other people's success that got Asaph in trouble. It was his own attitude. He became extremely self-centered, and when you become self-centered one way or the other, there's a spiral that you're going to be on, and it's going to go inexorably downward. You ever been there before and it feels like you just can't do anything about it? You're going down the drain because your heart just will not trust God. I mean, it could be that your circumstances are entirely different from those that Asaph encountered. But I know you can identify with his despair. I know you've been in that place. If not, just wait a few years. You will be. Those of you who are young, I, I, I hate to say, you know, like the old man, well, you just wait, but you just wait. <laughs> um, there's no telling how long Asaph's agony lasted. And by the way, that, I said this not too long ago, but that's why if I were to ask you what's your favorite book of the Bible is there would be very few young people who would say Psalms, but a whole lot of old people would say Psalms because they've been down all of these paths and they appreciate the honesty and the difficulty of working through the inequities of life. And my goodness, life is inequitable. It doles it out unfairly. 
So if that's where the psalm ended, we'd be left with no hope. But there's a change in verse 15. Asaph's conscience finally was heard. If I say what I am thinking, it's going to hurt my brothers and sisters. There's a lesson to be learned from Asaph, one that I needed to learn a long time ago. It's not necessary to say everything that you're thinking. It's not being hypocritical. It's just being considerate. Just because you're struggling doesn't mean you have to take everyone down with you. Now look, it's it, singing about Job. I'm going to be talking about Job this fall. When he opens his mouth, his friends sit with him for seven days. Best thing they did the entire time they were there, just to sit there quietly and grieve with him. And then he says, oh, this is awful. I just wish I'd never been born. And they immediately said, you got sin in your life. Well, there's a lesson for us to learn too. We shouldn't be doing that. Just, just say, I know it's hard, brother. I know it's hard. And then encourage them to see the perspective or have the perspective that Asaph came to. You've got to let people go through that process. It's part of it. Asaph committed to keep his problems to himself, at least while he was struggling. But he still had a problem. He had to work out these grand or glaring inequities of life with bad guys getting all the goody out of life. But he just couldn't make sense of it. He tried when I thought to understand. It just seemed a wearisome task. I can't make any sense of it. How can it be? Until he went into the sanctuary of God, that is. Asaph was referring either to the tabernacle or the temple. His life seems to have overlapped both. It could have been either one. The equivalent for us is right here on Sunday morning, not just because it's a church building, but because the people of God are gathered together as the church, as the temple of God, as the building of God. And when we share from the Word and when we encourage one another, and even on a more intimate basis in our home groups, in the smaller group settings then we find perspective. That's the way it is. It was for Asaph. It's the way it is for us. When life gets overwhelming, we have two choices. We can sink into the abyss of bitterness and become angry with God or the world, and the world. Or we can seek answers from God. And we find answers in His Word. Yes, but get over it yourself in the American way that I can work this out by... No! Theology is always done in community. I I meet with some of my pastor friends. I I try to meet with them every week. You may drive by Starbucks someday and see four guys sitting out there and I'm one of them and we're drinking coffee and we may be laughing and we may look deep in thought and you may say, you know what, that's a... Boy, I wish I had a job like that. That's probably the most important thing I do all week. That and meeting with the elders and with the home group leaders like we did this past week. And together we work out Scripture. You can't do it on your own. And I promise you, this is not a a, a matter of our pastor goes to the Word, he studies, and then he brings to us what God has given him. No, I'm giving to you what God gave to Augustine. 
and Athanasius and Neil Manning and Jim McLaughlin and Scott and Chris and all of the elders and the deacons and, and David and Ricky. We talk about it in Keisha. We talk about Scripture. And it's in the house of God. It's among the people of God that there will be answers. So bitter or seek God in his house. What did Asaph discover in God's sanctuary? He discerned the end of those who mock God with their success in this life. Their end in verse 17 is literally their afterward or their eternal destiny. Look, if you, suppose you see someone driving down the road. Suppose you see it's the person that you're actually a little envious of. And he or she is driving your dream car. And there is an extremely good-looking woman or a good-looking guy sitting next to him or her, you know. And their heads are thrown back. It's a convertible. It's a summer. And their heads are thrown back laughing. They're just driving through life without a care in the world. And you're tempted to be envious. But what if you know that two miles down the road the bridge is out and they're going to go over a thousand foot cliff at 60 miles an hour? Does that change your perspective? Because they're laughing their way through life and they don't see the danger that's ahead. It changes it entirely, doesn't it? What do you have to... Look, you've got to risk humiliation. You've got to risk life and limb if you're a believer and stand in front of him and say, Stop! Stop! For Asaph, it was enough just to know. But for us, we have to try to do something about it. God's judgment comes in verses 18 to 20. Not only does God judge these arrogant pretenders, but He rejects them. He dismisses them. What a terrible pronouncement at the judgment seat, at the great white throne judgment when Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. It's horrible to think about the terrors of hell for eternity. Can you imagine just being dismissed by God? I'm sorry, you're done. It's over. And then he puts you there and he never thinks about you again. Finally, Asaph gets it. Isn't it odd that that ought to be our comfort no matter what our circumstance is? Not just, you know, hey, the rich have and I don't. Some people go to the beach on Memorial Day weekend. I got to stay here, you know. Um, But what if you're really sick? What if you're going on six months, no job? Eternal perspective ought to impact the way that we relate to God and therefore relate to others. And now Asaph sees the picture more clearly. He rues his former attitude. I was 
a beast. Had no idea what I was talking about. Brutish. I was utterly disgusting. I should have kept silent. My heart condemns me. You know that feeling, don't you? Don't you? I hope you do. Look, if you have not been disgusted with yourself in the last two years, something's maybe wrong. Because that's who we are apart from Christ. Before Jesus, we are in Adam. I'll flesh this out someday. I've been thinking about it a lot lately. And talking about it with, with my buddies, my theological, my theology buddies. Before Christ, we are in Adam. After Jesus, we are no longer in Adam. We are in Christ. But Adam is still in us. And it's not so much whether we'll sin by choice. We will sin in this life because of our nature. We have two natures. And if we no longer acknowledge that Adam wants to have his way in our lives. And if we no longer acknowledge, I've got a problem. We're in trouble. So Asaph said, my heart condemns me. Do not let your success, success of any kind, even success in sanctification. Sanctification is no more your work than salvation is. It's God's work in you. If success of any kind goes to your head, you may find yourself on the wrong end of this psalm. When you confess your foolish attitude to the Lord, not only do you find forgiveness, but you recognize that God was patiently waiting all the time. You know, it's kind of like we, we, we think when we're struggling, we've, God is somewhere out there. And we're... Look, I know you, you may want to look at that poem, Footprints, and, and say that's just so simplistic. And it is in some ways, but gosh, to me it, it, it says so much. Times we think, where were you, God? He was carrying us. Your future is secure. In Jesus Christ. And that knowledge should bring you with Asaph to a place of delight in the Lord. Let's read these last verses aloud. Would you join me as we read verses 25 to 28? Read these together out loud. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you like to have the kind of heart that is mentioned in verse 25? It may come only after a period of great difficulty. In fact, I don't think you get it, get that heart apart from losing everything that was precious to you in one way or another. Not everything, you know what I'm saying. Just something that was so 
precious to us. Ask Jack Lucas what it's like to have health all your life and then one day they're cutting your legs open and moving veins around. And all of a sudden, life is completely different. Talk to Elise and the Craig when they say tumor and, 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 and their kids. Talk to, to any of us in here. We can all, we've all got a story, don't we? If you're old enough, you do. Something has happened that has taken you far away. And yes, I desperately want that. Well, hang in there. In a hard place. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Asaph's trouble were a result of his failure to control his own desires and covetous heart. It wasn't so much the circumstances as it was him. And your trouble may be similar to his or completely different. And it may be inconceivable that you will go from despair to delight. How can I ever find delight in my soul again? Who knows? God may have had Asaph write this psalm for you. You. He had you in mind when Asaph wrote this psalm. When he said his flesh and his heart may fail, he was referring to death. His statement is fairly significant because Old Testament saints just didn't have the same understanding of afterlife that we do in Jesus and understanding the resurrection and where we're going to be. There are indications that he believed in some kind of existence, but Asaph goes so far as to say that God will be his strength and portion even in, at, and after death. I am going to trust God no matter what. If Asaph can say that, how much more should we say it? He brings his writing to a close by recalling the truth of the end of those who are opposed to God. And then he sings about his commitment to draw near to the Lord. You'll remember in verse 15 that Asaph wisely decided to remain quiet when he was in despair. But now that he has the mercy and the blessing of God, he is shouting forth his praises. And and let me just say, just because certain people that you know only shout praises doesn't mean that they're not in despair. They are sometimes. But they know when to speak and when to be silent. I'm not in that crowd. I, I, some, when I've got problems, oh, you're going to know about it. In one way or another. Now that God has showered his grace on Asaph, the psalmist vows to tell of God's great works. When God is your refuge, it's time to tell somebody. This morning, even if you are in a state of despondency, know that God will bring you out of your depression. Maybe not immediately. Look, if you belong to Jesus, it may be when you stand before him. But that's when everything is made complete and everything is going to be all right. It may not feel like it, but everything is going to be okay. Reminds me of a Dolly Parton song, but I digress. I won't talk about that. Because Dolly didn't really have it, did she? Well, she may know Christ, I don't know. But when you know Jesus, it's going to be all right.
That's the, that's the message of Psalm 73. Let's pray. And as we pray, we will pray also for our benevolence offering. We take this once a month. And look, one of the ways that we encourage people who are very discouraged is by giving of our finances so that their burden can be eased a little bit. We have a lot of people who are going through some just devastating things in their lives. And often that means money. Finances are going to address these difficult health conditions, employment conditions. And we show the love and the mercy and the grace of God and, the, and, and, and how the body works together when it's someone in our body. Or the love of Christ when it's someone out of our body by giving. Lord, uh, we confess that we are a very self-focused, self-centered people. And even as I say that, I recognize that there are some beautiful testimonies in our midst of those who have enormously difficult problems and yet praise you, acknowledge you as the Lord and God, the Creator and the Redeemer and the One who gives life. We thank you for these shining, beautiful, shining testimonies of uh, of the end of Psalm 73 as these people proclaim your goodness. And Lord, it can't be easy. So what a privilege it is in some cases for us to come alongside and say, of, of what God has given me, I am so thrilled and so privileged to give to you. We do that as a body. So Lord, bless this offering. And bless the body of Grace Community Church. May we encourage one another and not despair, but be led to a place of delight in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Take comfort in God's word. Peter tells us that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, who at the proper time will exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Uh, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour someone. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are taking place in the brotherhood throughout the world. And after we have suffered a little while, God himself, the God of all grace, who has called us to his glory in Christ Jesus, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said,